You're listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. It's the place we talk about everything that's important and nothing that isn't. I'm your host, Vinay Prasad. In today's Plenary Session podcast, we're going to talk about three things. First, we're going to talk about what is the response rate in phase one clinical trials? Is it getting better in the era of all these wonderful cancer drugs? Or is that merely because our analyses are getting worse? It's a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. Next, we're going to talk about HER2-directed therapy in metastatic gastric or GE junction cancer. Pertuzumab was recently tested in the Jacob trial, which was a negative study. But the editorialists have something quite interesting to say about what might have happened had ramucirumab been used more often in a subsequent line of therapy. It's a very bold statement that I think requires a deep dive. Finally, we're going to talk about a new analysis article that came out on September 19th in the British Medical Journal by me and Go Nishikawa, who's a hospitalist here at OHSU and applying for Hemong Fellowship in the very near future. He's a fantastic candidate, and he helped bring this paper to fruition. It's called Diagnostic Expansion in Clinical Trials. MI, Stroke, Cancer Recurrence, and Metastasis may not be the hard endpoints you thought they were. At a minimum, it's sure to provoke a bit of controversy. So, stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, follow us on iTunes or SoundCloud or your app of choice. Go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. Write a review. It really means a lot. And if you have feedback about the show or suggestions for future episodes, email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. There was a bit of correspondence recently in the New England Journal of Medicine, which has forced me to discuss an article that appeared there this summer, an article that I really don't like. And the only thing I don't like more than the article is the author's response in the correspondence section this week in the New England Journal of Medicine. So here's the piece. It's called Encouraging Trends in Modern Phase One Oncology Trials. It was published as a piece of correspondence on June 7th, 2018 in the NEJM. Now, you need to know a bit of background. Prior to this study, we have patients with cancer who participate in phase one clinical trials of new cancer drugs. And many oncologists feel, and counsel patients, that their participation in these so-called dose escalation studies of novel compounds should really be thought of as something that they do for the communal good. It is unlikely that patients participating in phase one studies will benefit themselves meaningfully in terms of clinical outcomes. And the reason to do it is to benefit patients like you in the future. And that's something that some oncologists, many oncologists counsel patients about, that this is overall not that likely to benefit you personally. And you shouldn't do this with high hopes or inflated or false ideas about what it may or may not do. Part of the reason oncologists feel that way is that prior evidence suggests that that is true. So in 2005, in the New England Journal of Medicine, in a special article by Zeke Emanuel, Chris Grady, and many other fine people, mostly from the National Institutes of Health, we we saw this article, Risks and Benefits of Phase I Oncology Trials, 1991 to 2002. And here's what it shows. 
It says, we reviewed all non-pediatric phase one oncology trials sponsored by CTEP at the NCI between 1991 and 2002. So it's important to know, this is a set of consecutively sponsored phase one trials. This is not a set of published trials. This is a set of all the trials that were run. And what they found was that the overall response rate or the percent of patients who had a partial or complete response was 10%. For classic phase one dose escalation studies of single investigational novel agents, they found the response rate was 4.4%. Now this was comparable to other prior estimates of phase one response rate, which were between four and 6%. So in other words, four or six, or maybe at most 10% of patients who participate in phase one clinical trials may have a response. Now let's be real clear, what is a response? A response means your tumors shrunk more than 30%. It does not necessarily mean you are better off as a result of that. It doesn't really show for sure that you live a longer or better life. And in fact, Barbara Rothschild and Nancy King write this in a letter to the editor. Horstman and colleagues assume that a tumor response is of benefit to subjects in phase one clinical trials. This assumption is not valid. A complete or partial tumor response is a surrogate endpoint, which for most agents has not been linked to a clinically meaningful outcome, such as improved survival. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. But at the same time, I think many of us feel that a drug that has a 0% response rate is very unlikely to confer meaningful benefit to patients. Response rate may not be proof of benefit, but it's often a prerequisite for benefiting a patient. But be that as it may, as of 2005, in a nice study of consecutive phase one trials, we get the sense that the response rate in classic phase one dose escalation studies is about 4.4%. So that's what we knew in 2005. Fast forward to the 2018 paper. These authors looked in PubMed to identify articles about phase one trials that were published between January 1st, 2014 and June 30th, 2015. They looked for the response rate and lo and behold, that response rate was 19.8% in articles they found on PubMed. So here's what they conclude, quote, in conclusion, critics have claimed that there is little benefit associated with the participation of patients in phase one oncology trials. Here they're using response rate as a surrogate for benefit, but let's allow that for the time being. Quote, our results indicate that this claim is not valid. So in other words, the response rate in phase one trials nowadays, because our new drugs are so much better than the older drugs, is about 20%, which is higher than prior estimates. You're welcome, everybody. We've solved that question. Of course, did they really solve that question? And the answer is probably not. And here's what I wrote about it on Twitter. I said, wow, this is a new low for boneheaded analyses. And let's be clear, the analysis is boneheaded, not the people who are very likely to be very good people. The analysis is the problem. Quote, let me explain why today's NEJM letter about response rate in phase one oncology trials is really, really poorly done. And the authors should not be so cocky or arrogant in their writing. Well, the obvious reason is that prior research looked at all conducted phase one clinical trials, and this research looks at published, not conducted, but published trials. And we have a lot of data that suggests, as this PLOS paper is provocatively titled, quote, non-publication is common among phase one single center non-prospectively registered or early terminated clinical trials. Or this, time to publication of oncology trials and why some trials are never published. Or this, inadequate dissemination of phase one trials, a retrospective cohort study. It's pretty much in the title. 
phase one trials are often not published. The ones that are published might be the ones with the higher response rate. So if you only look at the published trials, you may get a spuriously high response rate, which is very obvious to anyone because that's why in 2005, Chris Grady and colleagues looked at published and unpublished studies. So what I wanna know is why would you update in the exact same journal a special article that is very well done with a piece of correspondence that has a fundamental flaw in it? And that's the question I'm gonna come back to. Of course, I accuse the authors of being a bit cocky in their writing, and, and here's, here's why. Not just that conclusion that the critics were off the mark, it's this. We also found a higher probability of an objective response among patients enrolled in phase one trials that included expansion cohorts than among those enrolled in such trials that did not include expansion cohorts. Well, that's so interesting. So trials that had good response rates prompted sponsors to open expansion cohorts, and then they had better response rate than those that did not. So what's the conclusion? They're leading you to believe that they think opening expansion cohorts is a great idea, but of course they were only opened for the drugs that had good response rate, right? So it's kind of putting the cart in front of the horse. The commissioner, the former commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, Bob Califf, has this very clever tweet about this paper. Am I missing something here? Pun intended. Searching the published literature in phase one trials seems highly biased on the positive side. Difficulties with publication bias are profound in phase one. So there Bob Califf did in one tweet what it took me several tweets to do, which is to say this likely suffers from publication bias. Okay, so I was so close to letting these authors off the hook. I was so close to giving them the benefit of the doubt, but they doubled down on this. They doubled down on it in the correspondence this week in the New England Journal of Medicine. And Dr. Jones writes, First, the authors performed a search of published trials on PubMed, and consequently their study is subject to inherent publication bias. Negative oncology trials are less likely to be published, particularly phase one trials. Reference. Therefore, the response rate of 19.8%, quoted by the authors, could be an overestimate of the true response rate for phase one trials. And here's what the authors say. We agree that the published phase one trials might represent a bias selection of all trials that have been conducted if preference is given to publishing meaningful results, a phenomenon widely known as publication bias. However, previous studies that were based exclusively on the published literature showed very low objective phase one response rates. Therefore, we believe the shifting trend for higher response rates in a modern phase one trials is real, particularly for those driven by a marker, marker, blah, blah, blah. Okay. They're ignoring the paper published in the very same journal in 2005 that documents a low response rate that does not suffer from publication bias. I don't understand this. I don't understand why they're ignoring this paper. And they're ignoring a contemporary paper by Subaya and colleagues that was published in the International Journal of Cancer. Here's what these authors did. They looked at all the patients at MD Anderson over the age of 65 who were treated on phase one studies. There were 347 patients. How many of those patients had a response? The answer was 18, which comes out to about 5.1%. So a contemporary analysis of phase one clinical trials albeit in patients over the age of 65, but nevertheless, phase one clinical trials, contemporary, 5.1%. The New England Journal of Medicine, classic phase one trials, 4.4%. Um, these are two papers that are not subject to publication bias, and yet these authors are ignoring that and continuing to promulgate the results of a highly biased data set. 
I simply don't understand this paper. I don't understand why it would be published in the New England Journal of Medicine when it's established that there is tremendous publication bias for this type of trial. I don't understand why when confronted with that realization, the authors merely double down on their rhetoric and rather than just to acknowledge the fact, yeah, other people have looked at this in a better way and they have lower response rates. Therefore, our response rate is likely affected by publication bias. And here's why it bothers me so much. If you're counseling a patient about a phase one clinical trial and you are inflating the potential to have a response, you are really robbing someone of their autonomy. We want this number to be as accurate as possible because we want to be able to most accurately convey the risks and benefits of novel drugs in phase one testing to participants so they can make choices compatible with their true desires. Anything less is a disservice to patients and deeply dishonorable in my view. So I don't like this paper, I don't like their response, and I really struggle with the fact that the editors allowed this to be published when they have previously published a paper in the exact same journal with better methodology. And what troubles me the most is that the only conclusion that I can come to as to why this is happening, which is a question I asked myself when I, when I kept seeing this, why? Why is this happening? The conclusion I come to, I fear, is that enthusiasm, rhetoric, and hype has gotten so out of control with modern cancer trials that we are willing to distort the evidence to suit the narrative that we want to tell rather than look at the evidence impartially to see what narrative emerges from the data. And that's a problem I find across the cancer space and it's a problem I find exemplified in this paper, Encouraging Trends in Modern Phase One Trials. Um, the reality is I have little reason to believe that classic phase one dose escalation studies are any better today than they were decades ago. Um, and that's not the same thing to say as me too, many, many me too phase ones. Those may in fact be better. You know, a new phase one of the fifth or sixth ALK drug, that might be better than the average cancer drug. But that's not the question that we're really asking here. We're asking all phase one clinical trials. And that needs to be analyzed in a data set that is free from publication bias. So I think the CTEP data set is a great data set to look at. It can be looked at again. The MD Anderson data set is a great set to look at. They published outcomes in 65 and older. They could publish outcomes in all patients. Um, we have to look at this honestly. We cannot have publication bias data driving the narrative and the discussion in this field. Um, it's just not good enough. It's not good enough for me. It's not good enough for patients. It shouldn't be good enough for the New England Journal of Medicine. The next topic I want to talk about is pertuzumab for HER2-positive gastric cancer, a little trial called Jacob that appeared in The Lancet Oncology on the 11th of September, 2018. So listeners need to know a bit of background. In gastric cancer, there is a subset that is HER2 positive either by fish or immunohistochemistry. In a seminal randomized control trial called TOGA, the authors randomized patients to trastuzumab plus chemotherapy or chemotherapy alone for HER2 positive patients with gastric cancer. Here's what they found. The median overall survival in the group that got Herceptin plus chemo was 13.8 months, but it was 11.1 months in those who got chemotherapy alone. And that difference is statistically significant. And therefore, trastuzumab received a drug approval for HER2 overexpressing metastatic gastric or GE junction adenocarcinoma. 
it was always fair to say that this drug product offers a modest to marginal benefit in this disease setting. And lo and behold, when a second HER2 antibody directed at a different epitope was discovered, pertuzumab, researchers decided to test it again in HER2-positive gastric cancer. When they went back in the Jacob study and tested the addition of pertuzumab to trastuzumab in chemotherapy and gastric cancer, they took away one lesson from the TOGA trial from many years ago. Specifically, in the FDA drug label for trastuzumab, it notes the following, that in the TOGA trial in an exploratory analysis by HER2 status using the updated OS results, if you were FISH positive but IHC 0 or 1 plus, there was no improvement in outcomes with a hazard ratio of 1.33 and a wide confidence interval. If you were FISH positive but IHC 2 plus, there appeared to be a trend towards improved outcomes, 0.78 was the hazard ratio, and the confidence interval spanned one, but it was 1.1 on the upper bound. If you were FISH positive and IHC 3 plus, the hazard ratio was 0.66, and the confidence interval did not span one. Therefore, per exploratory analysis in the FDA drug label, it appears that as the IHC goes up, the improved outcomes are even better with trastuzumab. Let me put that another way. Per the drug label, it appears that the patients who derive the benefit from the addition of trastuzumab to chemotherapy are those in whom not only are they fish positive, they also stain very strongly on immunohistochemistry for HER2. So with that knowledge, when Jacob was designed, only patients with IHC 2 plus or 3 plus were included. So if anything, this is a group of patients enriched to benefit from HER2 blockade in this cancer. And despite that, and despite a lofty sample size of 388 in one arm and 392 in the other arm, the trial failed to meet statistical significance. That p-value is 0.057. The hazard ratio is 0.84. The difference in overall survival is 17.5 months and 14.2 months. So some of my friends who are the statistical purists will say that hmm, it was just on the bad side of 0.05. Um, it was really close. There's likely something here, um, and perhaps subsequent studies could show that. Um, but many clinicians would point out that even though you're choosing the most enriched patients, even though you're picking a patient population um, that has really a remarkable outcome, uh, likely due to the selection biases we've discussed before in this podcast, um, you failed to meet the mark in this large, very large randomized control trial. So however you slice it, let's say for the sake of argument, pertuzumab likely not getting FDA Food and Drug Administration approval for pertuzumab when added to HER2-positive gastric cancer, even though they did a trial this time with a more refined cohort truly overexpressing HER2. But that isn't why I brought you here today. I didn't bring you here to discuss this paper, and I'm not going to talk about it too much. I brought you here because I read something in the editorial or the attached comment to this paper that caught my eye that was something truly unprecedented, something I had never seen before. So many of you will know that when a trial is run and overall survival was not improved by the agent, one of the common refrains we hear is that post-protocol survival 
was so long and subsequent therapies confounded the beneficial effect that the experimental agent would have had on survival. I don't like this argument, and I've explained on Twitter, perhaps even in this podcast on prior episodes, why I don't like this argument. You're really saying that all of the older drugs could have resulted in the same overall survival as your new fancy costly drug. That is not really a ringing endorsement for your new fancy costly drug. In this case, the authors have of the editorial have a different slant, and it's a slant I've never seen before about how post-protocol therapy might affect the outcomes. Let me read you the paragraph and then let me kind of deconstruct it. Another important issue is the effect of subsequent therapies on survival. Ramucirumab and apatinib in Chinese patients have been shown to improve survival in previously treated metastatic gastric cancer. Ramucirumab is now widely used for metastatic gastric cancer management. However, ramucirumab was used as a subsequent therapy in less than 6% of patients in the Jacob trial. The low proportion of patients who were treated with ramucirumab in Jacob might have affected the analysis of final overall survival. One hypothesis could be that blocking angiogenesis might overcome anti-HER2 resistance, although this reasoning is entirely speculative and requires further investigation. Few data are available on the use of ramucirumab in patients with disease progression despite anti-HER2-based combination therapy. This is something stunning. The authors are saying here that despite the fact that a life-prolonging therapy was not used post-protocol, i.e. less than 6% of patients, which should be a fault of the trial, um, there was no survival advantage. However, had you used ramucirumab, who knows? This is the exact opposite of what we usually hear. They're saying that post-protocol therapy wasn't that good. It didn't confound the effect of the treatment, but had it been better, maybe the treatment would have somehow magically been better. It's also absolutely unclear how blocking angiogenesis in the future would impact HER2 resistance in the present. How does that work? How does something that happened to you tomorrow affect how you react to something today? It would be like saying, a week from now, you're going to drink a lot of water, and right now you're really thirsty, and I'm offering you a glass of water. And how thirst-quenching this water is today in part depends on how much water you drink two weeks from now. It literally makes no sense from a temporal aspect, from a biological aspect. It makes no sense when compared against the prior rhetoric used in this space. It makes no sense, period. It is not only entirely speculative, it is delusional. It is really grasping at straws for trying to spin a negative trial into a positive trial. I have no idea why anyone would say this. It makes no sense that if post-protocol therapy were better, this drug would have shown a benefit. That defies all logic, all common sense, and the usual rhetoric used in this space. It really goes to show you that people will say absolutely anything, and it will be promulgated going forward. last article I want to talk about this week is an analysis article in the British Medical Journal entitled Diagnostic Expansion in Clinical Trials. Myocardial Infarction, Stroke, Cancer Recurrence, and Metastasis may not be the hard endpoints you thought they were. It's written by Go Nishikawa and me. Go is a hospitalist here at OHSU who's applying for hematology-oncology fellowship in the near future. Go is a fantastic doctor and an even better researcher and an even better person, and I would highly recommend him for your oncology fellowship training program. And he worked with me on this analysis article that was written a while back 
um, that went through a very rigorous peer review process and now appears in the British Medical Journal. And here's what we talk about. We start with this line. It is intuitive and obvious that no person desires an MI stroke or recurrence of a previously localized cancer. Reducing these endpoints is therefore the evidentiary basis of a wide range of drugs, devices, and surgical procedures. However, recent trials in cardiovascular and cancer medicine force us to revisit the assumption of their value as endpoints. Several studies recently have produced discordant results, with some interventions lowering MI, stroke, or metastasis, but having no effect on cardiovascular death, health-related quality of life, or cancer-related death, or overall mortality, which are harder clinical endpoints. In contrast, in prior eras, these endpoints were improved hand-in-hand with the harder endpoints. So what's going on? Why is it that some of these trials in recent years are lowering the rate of metastasis or stroke or MI, but not lowering cardiovascular death or improving health-related quality of life or improving mortality? And we hypothesize and we take the reader through rather extensive data that shows that perhaps there has been diagnostic drift in terms of what counts as a metastasis in 2018 may be different than what counted as a metastasis in 1998. Why? One of the biggest reasons why is advances in imaging and advances in biopsy. The same lesion on a bone many years ago that may not be visualized on a CAT scan and may not be able to be biopsied may now be able to be visualized with high resolution on perhaps even a PET scan that uses a novel isotope, and it may be able to be biopsied through the wizards in interventional radiology. And they really are wizards, it appears at times. Um, By doing this, a person with the exact same disease in 1998 who would not be diagnosed with metastasis may be diagnosed with metastasis today. And that fact may explain some of the discordance between recent trials that show improvements in these outcomes but fail to show improvements in more meaningful endpoints. I don't want to spoil the entire paper. I think it's worth a deep read. I just want to talk about it in concert with a recent paper that appeared in The Lancet that had not been published prior to our paper. It's entitled High Sensitivity Troponin in the Evaluation of Patients with ACS, a Stepped Wedge Cluster Randomized Trial. Now, using the 99th percentile of high sensitivity troponin assay, you will diagnose more patients with MI who otherwise would come into the ED now with chest pain that resolves and rule out. You will find people with very small myocardial ischemia and necrosis that you otherwise would not find. You will apply the MI label more. And this Lancet's paper shows that 17% of 10,000 patients had this label applied that otherwise would not have been applied. In fact, this assay does find more heart attacks. But here's the kicker. It failed to improve MI or cardiovascular death at one year, which was the primary endpoint of the study. This is a very provocative study. Um, It likely comes too late as data shows that in the months prior to the study, at least 40% of hospitals in Europe and America had adopted high-sensitivity troponin and Many of your hospitals may have adopted high-sensitivity troponin assays, um, so it may be coming a little too late. But it does strongly suggest that simply labeling people with MI with ultra-sensitive diagnostic techniques does not necessarily mean you improve outcomes for those patients. This is something that we have to keep in mind in the era of AFib found by novel mechanisms 
Am I found by ultra-sensitive testing? And even metastasis, as it will inevitably be found by more and more sensitive blood tests, perhaps, or perhaps better imaging. We have to ask ourselves continually if the new patients who are included in the old diagnostic category have the same outcomes and benefit similarly from therapies as we had previously proven based on the old definition of the diagnosis. Okay, so putting this all together, what does this mean? Go and I are taking a stab. We're trying to ask why some clinical trials that lower MI, stroke, or metastasis fail to improve cardiovascular death, health-related quality of life, or cancer-related death, or all-cause mortality, when in prior eras, these endpoints improved hand-in-hand. And it isn't the magnitude of the improvement in MI, stroke, or metastasis, because we'll show you in the paper that it's actually quite comparable to some of the prior studies. Perhaps it is because what counts as the endpoint is shifting over time. Here's how we conclude. It is understandable that investigators would be tempted to declare reductions in cancer metastasis, MI, or stroke as proof of therapeutic efficacy. However, because diagnostic drift may now include illness of lesser severity, it is no longer clear that any of these events implies loss of health-related quality of life. Direct consideration of health-related quality of life has the added advantage of balancing the benefit against the harms of the intervention, such as side effects, toxicity, treatment burden, time commitment, and financial costs. We also conclude, some people say, and we give the example of prostate cancer, that a metastasis is bad because it could present with a fracture of perhaps even the femur or some sort of major important bone of the body, and that would be a bad thing. And absolutely, that would be a bad thing. But we write this. In the case of the PROTECT trial, quote, given concern about metastasis leading to fracture, this outcome could be explicitly reported. There seems little value in having experts speculate about the consequences of metastases when these are known to the trialists. Data sharing has potential to lead to greater clarity and transparency, and other investigators may further refine the breakdown and transparency of endpoints, particularly in trials over time. We also have this piece of advice. Validity of outcomes may also be improved by greater patient involvement at the outset of clinical trials in their design and conduct. Patients can help to develop instruments that best capture their burden of symptoms or their sequela of disease. And there are promising efforts in this vein. We talk about something called OMERACT, which is in rheumatoid arthritis. We, quote, suggest this process is iterative, performed before, during, and after trials, and this way patient experiences improve subsequent investigations. So that's our paper. It's an analysis article about why endpoints that historically were hard endpoints may now no longer be what we thought they were. I, I, I have to applaud Dr. Nishikawa uh, for, for doing the hard, hard work of putting this analysis together. And um, I urge you all to take a good look at this and uh, to pull it up alongside the high-sensitive detroponin paper in The Lancet. Um, give them both a close look. Um, pull up the studies we talk about. Pull up Protect, protect and, and let's think about it a little bit more. So, this was a special edition of the Plenary Session. And we talked about a few papers. Um, we'll be back next week. Uh, with more hard-hitting interviews. Um, But for the time being, this is what you get. Um, Give us feedback at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com and let us know how you feel about this format.
You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a new podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this show and you like this podcast, uh, please go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. Uh, it means a lot. Um, follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session um, or send us an email at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you have any thoughts, questions, topics you want to cover, um, let us know. We'd love to get some feedback. Uh, plenary session uh, owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, uh, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. <laughs>